Please open your Bibles to the book of Lamentations. Again, if you're looking for Lamentations, it's in the Old Testament. It's Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, then Ezekiel and Daniel. And tonight we're looking at Lamentations verses 1 through verse 22. So Lamentations 1, beginning in verse 12, if you'll look there with me. Is it nothing to you, all you who pass by? Look and see if there's any sorrow like my sorrow, which was brought upon me, which the Lord inflicted on the day of his fierce anger. From on high he sent fire into my bones. He made it descend He spread a net for my feet. He turned me back. He has left me stunned, faint all the day long. My transgressions were bound into a yoke. By his hand they were fastened together. They were set upon my neck. He caused my strength to fail. The Lord gave me into the hands of those whom I cannot withstand. The Lord rejected all my mighty men in my midst. He he summoned an assembly against me. To crush my young men, the Lord has trodden as in a winepress, the virgin daughter of Judah. For these things I weep, my eyes flow with tears. For a comforter is far from me, one to revive my spirit. My children are desolate, for the enemy has prevailed. Zion stretches out her hand, her hands, but there is none to comfort her. The Lord has commanded against Jacob that his neighbors should be his foes. Jerusalem has become a filthy thing among them. The Lord is in the right, for I have rebelled against his word. But hear all you peoples and see my suffering. My young women and my young men have gone into captivity. I called to my lovers, but they deceived me. My priests and elders perished in the city while they sought food to revive their strength. Look, O Lord, for I am in distress. My stomach churns, my heart is wrung within me, because I have been very rebellious. In the street the sword bereaves, in the house it is like death. They heard my groaning, yet there is no one to comfort me. All my enemies have heard of my trouble. They are glad that you have done it. You have brought the day you announced. Now let them be as I am. Let all their evil doings come uh, come before you and deal with them. As you have dealt with me because of all my transgressions, for my groans are many and my heart is faint. Together. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And though, as we've seen before, this is a difficult book even to read, Lord, yet we know it's your word and we pray that you would teach us from your word, that you would feed us, that you would instruct us, or even that you would sanctify us by your word. So we pray that your spirit would work now as your word is open. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Now just to remind you all, this is our our third sermon in Lamentations. And Lamentations is what we've called a communal lament. Or we could call it a national lament. Where the whole nation, this is Judah. In particular the capital of Jerusalem. But but Judah has been carried into captivity. uh, And it's lamenting. It's sadness for 
the destruction of Jerusalem, the destruction of the temple, the carrying off of Judah into exile that happened in 587 B.C. by the Babylonians. And so as we look at this passage in particular, it focuses on two parts of that broader message that we looked at when we did the introduction to the book of Lamentations a few weeks ago. Uh, When we looked at the introduction of the book, we said that the message is calamity has come, sin has caused it, God has ordered it, yet there's hope. So again, calamity has come, sin has caused it, God has ordered it, yet there's hope. And so this passage focuses in particularly, uh, in particular on what God has done and what his people have done. And so if we were to put it in terms of the categories that we saw in our message, we'd say that this section of the book in particular uh, is focusing upon the idea that God's people have sinned and that God has brought calamity. So at least two of the things we saw, sin has caused it, God has ordered it, really in a reversal of the order we're going to look at today. But sin has caused it, God has ordered it. And to some extent, what we're looking at is what has God caused, which is the calamity, which really brings in the third point. And uh, I've said all throughout the book, there's a hint of hope. We're going to see the greatest expression of hope in chapter 3, which is really at the center of the book and is meant to emphasize that this is where we need to hope. And so while hope isn't primarily expressed in this passage, we do see several points to our message from a few uh, weeks ago. And I'm going to be talking about how God has dealt with his people I just thought I better define my terms very carefully just to avoid confusion. Uh, When I refer to Judah as his people, I don't mean that uh, all of Judah are elect. I don't mean that all that were in Judah were Christians. In fact, what God's word tells us is that there were very few in Judah that were Christian, which is why this calamity has come upon them because of their sin. Um, But there were some that were Christians in there. And so when I say God's people, you understand that I mean in the broad sense of the word, God had identified himself with the nation of Israel. Even after the division, in particular, God identified himself with Judah even more so than Israel. And Israel at this point has already been carried off in that south. So Judah were, outwardly speaking, the people who identified as God's people. And that's what I mean when I say the people of God. I don't mean necessarily that they're all Christians. So even as we look at that, and I'm going to say God's people have done this, or God has brought this upon his people, we cannot make a one-to-one correlation between This is what God does to Christians today or what God does to the uh, invisible church, we might say. So just want to clarify that. But I want us to look at those two parts. Uh, The passage is really grouped into two points. What God has done and what his people have done. And that's really what I want us to look at today. So what God has done. If you were to look again at verses 12 through 18, that's seven verses there. But as you look at those verses... Look at how many times God's name is used or a personal pronoun referring to God. As you scan those verses and look for God's name, you'll see just how uh, the emphasis is upon God and his work. When I went through, I counted at least 14 times um, with five of those times occurring in verse 13 by itself. So at least 14 times God or a pronoun referring to God is mentioned in, in these seven verses. Uh, So the emphasis here is definitely on God. In verse uh, 5, which is going further back, something we looked at last time in Lamentations, but look at verse 5. In the second sentence we read, The Lord has afflicted her for the multitude of her transgressions. And so what we see here in this passage is really an expansion 
of that comment in verse 5. The Lord has afflicted her for the multitude of her transgressions. That really gets into the two parts. The first part is the Lord has afflicted her. And the second part is because of her transgressions. And so I want us to see in this first section uh, what exactly it is that the Lord has done. And I've said before, some of the Lamentations is difficult to read. And so we're going to see how the Lord has afflicted his people and what that means. And so first, in verse 12, we see he has inflicted remarkable suffering upon his people. Is it nothing to you all who pass, uh, who, uh, you who pass by? Look and see if there's any sorrow like my sorrow, which is brought upon me, which the Lord inflicted on the day of his fierce anger. So I said first he has inflicted remarkable suffering upon his people. I mean remarkable in the literal sense. Uh, Judah's asking here, personified, is there any suffering that compares to my suffering? Now, um, a lot of people have taken this and applied it to Jesus Christ. Jesus doesn't say this at the cross, but we can definitely see how Jesus' suffering is unlike any suffering that any of us will ever face, any human being has ever faced. There's a spiritual dynamic to uh, God becoming flesh and then being separated from the Father because of sin that we can't comprehend. But I just want to say that I don't see this passage primarily speaking of Jesus, though we could say this would affirm something that's true of Jesus' life. But they're acknowledging that they're going through a suffering that's somewhat unique. They're inflicted in a very harsh way. Uh, It's even referred to as the day of the Lord's fierce anger. Just let that sink in for a minute, that God the Father had fierce anger against his own people. What do we mean when we speak of his anger? I think God's anger or God, we might call it his wrath. That God's wrath is his holiness that stirred into activity against sin. It's the natural response of God's holiness to sin. God responds with anger against sin. We have, we have, uh, we may have an association in our minds between fierce anger and sin. Right? If I were to tell you that this afternoon I had a, a period of fierce anger, it's not one of you that probably wouldn't think, oh, he sinned. Right? We tend to associate fierce anger with sin. But we know that that's not the case with God. It's precisely because He's holy. Because God is without sin, that He in this instance responds with fierce anger. Because He's responding to His people's sin. And God of His very nature must hate sin. God in holiness has to be opposed to sin. Even as we consider the subject of holiness... Just imagine one reason that we are not always opposed to sin is because we're not fully holy yet. It's our lack of holiness that allows us to play with sin, to entertain sin. There's none of that in God. God's completely opposed to sin. And so when His people are continuing to rebel against Him, when His people continue in sin, the natural response, the inevitable, the only response that God can have is one of anger against His sin. So it's wrong to assume that God's goodness precludes his wrath. We talked a little bit about this this morning with the idea of universalism. That how can a good God send anybody to hell? We have to understand that part of God's nature, for God to be good, would necessitate that he not ignore sin. That he not... Just think of, if you could imagine a judge. Um, I remember not long after I got here, there was a, a... uh, an investigation into some of the judges in Luzerne County being corrupt. You may, may remember the kids for cash controversy. 
Right? None of us would assume that a good judge is one who always declares everyone innocent. Right? What if they caused harm to you and you're going to the trial and you're testifying against someone and you get the judge that always declares everyone innocent? Right? No one mistakes that for goodness. A good judge is one who rightly assesses the situation and gives the proper verdict, right? God's holy. All sin before Him must be judged. And so God responds to that in wrath. And I think as Christians we have to realize by the grace of God, if we've trusted in Jesus Christ, that it's not as though God doesn't respond to our sin with anger and wrath. Do we sometimes imagine as Christians, well, that may be true of an unbeliever, but when I sin, God doesn't respond in wrath. I think that's not true at all. The reality is that in our trusting in Jesus Christ, God has poured out His wrath on the Son that we so rightly deserved. All of our sin demands from God a response of wrath. But if we trust in Christ Jesus, that wrath has been poured out on the Son. So though we may not directly face a wrath, that is God's inevitable response to sin. And we have to understand that His wrath is a terrifying reality. Uh, the people here in Jerusalem saw firsthand what does it mean for the Lord's wrath to be poured out. And sometimes we're so far removed that we don't take seriously Lord, the Lord's wrath. But it's a terrifying reality. Secondly, we see that the Lord has turned against His own people. We see this in verse 13. From on high He sent fire into my bones. He made it descend. He spread a net for my feet. He turned me back. He has left me stunned, faint, all the day long. So, we just to start with, it says in verse 13, From on high He sent fire. I think the expression from on high highlights the divine origin and the nature of the punishment. Right, I said all along that this section is pointing us to God's the one, if I can say this, to blame. In some way we're going to say that man's the one to blame. But God's responsible for what's happened. It's not ultimately Babylon that's judged God's people. It's God who's judged His people. And so we see the emphasis that the fire has come not from Babylon, not from a foreign nation, but the fire has come from on high. It's come from God. Likewise, the nature of the fire. Heavenly fire is more fierce. It's not so... Easily quenched as earthly fire. I thought of the fire that fell on Elijah's sacrifice that consumed all the sacrifice and the water and the rocks. I mean, this is an intense fire and the fire has gone down into the bones and uh, the idea of going into the bones just means it's penetrated the innermost parts. There's nowhere in our body that could hide from it. He's feeling it. He, this is in some ways Jerusalem or Judah personified, but God's people are feeling it to the innermost parts of their being. There's no part of them that doesn't know the pain of God's judgment upon them. And so we're, we're told here that God did not deal with His people in some light or superficial way. You, you can imagine that the parent that threatens great punishments that their kids disobey, and then basically like a, a pat on the back, well, you know you, you shouldn't have done that. right? God isn't threatened judgment upon His people. And then not carried it through. What we're seeing, as we've talked about before, is God's carrying out exactly what He promised from the prophets. For 300 years they had been warned, if you don't repent, this is what's going to happen. And now God uh, hasn't superficially dealt with His people, but He's he's very much turned against them. I think as well, one of the themes that we're going to see in the book of Lamentations, and we talked about this in our survey of the Bible, if you remember in Sunday school, uh, but in the Old Testament, there's much that's said about the warrior of the Lord. 
And the, the portrait that's portrayed of the warrior of the Lord is that God is a warrior for his people. And so there's times, and you guys are familiar with this, there's times in the Old Testament where Israel is encouraged, don't trust in your horses. Don't trust in your chariots or your strong man. The Lord is your warrior. And so the Lord's going to go to battle for you. The Lord's going to fight for you. And so almost always in the Old Testament, the concept of the warrior of the Lord is God is a protector of his people. And so what's remarkable in the book of Lamentations is we see a reversal of the role of the warrior of the Lord. I think we're getting a touch of that already here. God is not now standing in defense of his people. The, the arrow, as it were, is turned around. You remember the idea of the rainbow. It's pointed away from God's people. It's, is, uh, this is, as it were, God's flipped it back around again. God has pointed his wrath upon his own people. And now he, as a warrior, has turned against his own people. And so, again, this is really powerful. For God's covenant people to think, God's always going to protect me. God's always going to take care of me. And is there a point where we can sin so far that God turns against us? I think we as Christians know the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. We know that if we've trusted in Jesus Christ, that nothing can snatch us out of God's hand. And that's not what I'm arguing here. But here we have outwardly a people who have identified as God's people, who have been told to repent, who don't. And God's patience runs out. The long-suffering of the Lord goes too far. And so then he turns even against his own people. And we see this expressed here in verse 13. Not only from the fire that he sent on high, but also he spread a net for my feet. He turned me back. He has left me stunned, faint all the day long. And the picture here is almost of one of a hunter. And we're going to see that again in the book of Lamentations where in the reversal, it's almost as if God's drawn an air, uh, a target on the back of his own people. He's pursuing them. He's hunting them. They become the prey. And so now God has turned against them and they're feeling that. And so the more they tried to free themselves from this net that he spread for their feet, the more they tried to free themselves by their own efforts, by their own wisdom, by their own self-justification, the more entangled they became in the net that he had spread. I think isn't that always the case when we try to stretch ourselves away from the Lord, that we try to get away from what the Lord has laid upon us, that we only, especially as we try to justify ourselves, that we only find ourselves more entangled. And then we see, thirdly, that the Lord has bound them with their sins. And so continuing this idea of him setting a net for their feet, Verse 14 says, My transgressions were bound into a yoke. By his hand they were fastened together. They were set upon my neck. He caused my strength to fail. The Lord gave me into the hands of those whom I cannot withstand. And so the Lord has bound them together, as it were, with their sins. He's used their, their sins to become a yoke to bind them. And again, we see an emphasis upon the Lord doing it. By his hand they were fastened together. The Lord gave me into the hands of those. And so we see again the focus upon the Lord's doing this. Uh, you guys are probably familiar with the concept of a yoke, even if probably most of us in this room haven't used a yoke. But the idea of a yoke is it would bind together uh, a pair of oxen or horses. And no matter how angry they would get, no matter how they would buck and fight, they can't get out of it. It keeps them in line and where they want to go. It's a way of controlling them. And so we see... Uh, Likewise, in spiritual matters, that no no matter how angry we get, no matter how much we rebel, we can't escape the yoke. And here in particular, God has fastened their sin into a yoke that they cannot escape. 
Matthew Henry says of this that the yoke of Christ's commands is an easy yoke. References Matthew 11.30 where um, my, my yoke is light. But the yoke of our transgressions is a heavy one. God is said to bind this yoke when he charges guilt upon us and brings us into those inward and outward troubles which our sins have deserved. When conscious, uh, conscience as his deputy binds us over to his judgment, then the yoke is bound and wreathed by the hand of his justice and nothing but the hand of his pardoning mercy will unbind it. I thought maybe what Matthew Henry is expressing, what I think he's rightly discerning from God's word is a picture that probably we're more familiar with, the Pilgrim's Progress. You remember when Pilgrim's making his way to the cross? And that load that's upon him, that, that burden that he bears on his back. He's saying, God now has taken their sin. And they thought they could shake their sin off. They thought their sin was a light thing. They thought their sin didn't really matter. God's bound it around their neck. And they feel the weight of it. And they feel the burden of it. They know they've been enslaved, as it were, to sin, to obey its commands. And now, even too late, they're realizing the consequences of the sin. And I think Matthew Henry also well says that the only thing that could uh, free them from the Lord's justice and from this yoke is nothing but the hand of his pardoning mercy that will unbind it. And so what they need is God's mercy. That's where freedom is found from this yoke. Fourthly, the Lord has judged and rejected his own people. Verse 15. The Lord rejected all my mighty men in, in my midst. He summoned an assembly against me to crush my young men. The Lord has trodden as in a winepress the virgin daughter of Judah. So the Lord has judged and rejected his people. The winepress is used throughout the Bible for the execution of divine judgment. The, the winepress of the Lord's wrath. And the picture represented to us here, again, regardless of how gruesome, what's being portrayed here is the pouring out of the red wine. As you imagine the grapes being crushed, it's giving an illustration for us of God's people being crushed. And the wine that's pouring out is their blood. That God has poured out, has wrath upon his people and the blood is just pouring forth. And so the Lord has judged and even rejected his people. The Lord rejected all my mighty men. Fifthly, the Lord has... Um, the Lord has left his people without comfort. Verses 16 and 17. For these things I weep. My eyes flow with tears. For a comforter is far uh, from me. One to revive my spirit. My children are desolate. For the enemy has prevailed. Zion stretches out her hands. But there is none to comfort her. The Lord has commanded against Jacob. That his neighbors should be his foes. And so we see that the Lord has left his people without comfort. Uh, they are without anyone to comfort them now. Look at, again, verse 21 has the same concept there. They heard my groaning, yet there is no one to comfort me. All my enemies have heard of my trouble. They are glad that you have done it. And so God has left his people without comfort. Uh, the lack of comfort, in fact, is expressed five times. I've shown you three of those, uh, verse 16, 17, and 21. Uh, but we see it also in verses 2 and verse 9 that we looked at last time. And so what does it mean for the Lord to leave his people without a comforter? What's the significance of that? Well, I think probably the most helpful way to understand this is in light of Psalm 23. In Psalm 23, a psalm that you guys are likely familiar with, uh, in particular verse 3, the psalmist says of God, He restores my soul. The idea of Psalm 23 almost is the idea of a comforter for the soul. 
And so, ultimately, what we're speaking of here is that God is our comforter. And so what God's people are truly lamenting is the absence of God. Who alone can comfort His people by His Word and His Spirit. God has left them without comfort. God's no longer coming to them to comfort them. They are, have an absence, as it were, of His Word and Spirit that truly give comfort to anyone. And now God has left them without that. And though verse 17 and 19 lead us to believe Judah still sought comfort uh, from their pagan neighbors instead of God. Uh, verse 17, Zion stretched out her hand, but there's none to comfort her. The Lord has commanded against Jacob that his neighbors should be his foes. And so we see there, where is it that they're looking for comfort? I think it's the, to their neighbors still. Again, verse 19. I called to my lovers, but they deceived me. Who are the lovers that were Judah's lovers? I think Judah's lovers are all these nations that they were committing adultery against God with. All these other gods that they've gone after. And so they're crying out to these other nature, these other nations seeking for comfort instead of crying out to the Lord. They've been unfaithful to God and now they found that their lovers weren't faithful to them either. So where do we go for comfort when we face affliction? I think maybe an application of this for us is do sometimes in the face of affliction, do we go to other unbelie- or to unbelievers for comfort? Do we talk to people who don't know the Lord and seek their counsel? Do we seek their comfort instead of going to the Lord? I think how often when we're afflicted do we just plop ourselves down in front of the television and just whatever the TV says, we're just taking stuff in. And to me, I think this is a lot like going to the nations around them. They're seeking counsel, as it were, support, comfort, for something that can give no comfort. They're seeking it from unbelievers, and it's the Lord alone who can comfort their hearts. But God, it says, has commanded that Judah's neighbor should become her enemy. And so it is. And so it's not just that the surrounding nations have sided with the Babylonians because they're a stronger army. God has commanded it. It's God who's done it. God's turned even these pagans against his own people. That he might judge his people. We see also at the end of verse 17. It says Jerusalem has become a filthy thing among them. So I think this is our sixth point. That the Lord has left his people filthy. Literally this means unclean. As we could think of the ceremonial law. God's left his people unclean. So God has commanded his people. As he who called you is holy. You also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written you shall be holy. For I am holy. This is what God's commanded of his people. He's called us to holiness. And in particular, as we think of Judah, Israel more broadly, but particularly Judah, God has set them apart from all the other nations to be holy to the Lord. If there's any people in the face of the earth that were to be holy to the Lord, it was to be Judah. And in some ways, we could extend this even further down. We could say that identity today is not a nation, but it's the church today. It's the Christians today. But they were set apart, Judah was set apart amongst all the nations to be alone for the Lord. They were to be holy to the Lord, set apart from all the other nations. But now we read that they are filthy amongst their neighbors. Jerusalem has become a filthy thing among them. I think what's even being implied is that the surrounding nations are looking upon Judah and thinking, or Jerusalem specifically mentioned here, and saying that uh, they have become filthy. So now the pagan nations, the ones that lack any sense of morality, 
sacrificing their children to idols, worshiping sexual idols. Now they're looking upon Jerusalem and saying, you're filthy. You're dirty. You're less moral than we are. And so we see that far from being holy, God's left his people unclean. And again, they're responsible for the sin, but God has seen fit not to cleanse them. Maybe we could even say in some ways, as we know, the exile is the cleansing. He's purging them, as it were, by fire to bring back a remnant that would be holy for him. And then sixthly, well, this isn't a point of something God's done, but I want to ask the question, has God wronged his people in treating them this way? Has God somehow done wrong? I mean, this is brutal. We talked before about, well, we saw a little bit about the, the priest even here, the leaders, those who might be well taken care of normally, are starving. They're going around looking for food and they're dying in the streets. We talked, again, I won't bring up some of the instances and lamentations, but there's severe cases of, of uh, how the famine affected people and what they had to do to survive. Is the Lord wrong in this? Has he done wrong? Let me put it this way. What would you conclude if you had faced this? So some survived the siege and were carried off in exile. So just imagine yourself in that scenario now. You've seen your city under siege for well over a year. People starved to death. Cannibalism in the city. You saw your leaders in the army flee trying to get away from the army and they get mown down. And then you're carried off as a slave. How do we respond in that situation? Do we ever shake our fists at God and think that the Lord's treated us unfairly? My guess is that most of us in this room have at some point felt like the Lord's dealt with us unfairly. And for something far less than this. Right? Something's going wrong in our life. We face some kind of suffering and we think, it's not right. Why would God do this? Maybe the questions run through our head, is God good? Does God really love me? What does this mean? And I think we have to understand that the Lord has done no wrong in this. Look at verse 18. Verse 18 really transitions into the focus on what God's people have done. Um, but, excuse me, yeah, it transitions into the focus upon what God's people have done, but not before first declaring that the Lord is in the right. Literally, this means the Lord is righteous is what's being declared. And so here's Judah personified speaking and saying, the Lord has inflicted us in all these ways. 14 times the emphasis upon God has done this to us. God has done this to us. But the Lord is in the right. The Lord is righteous. The Lord has done no wrong. We must remember in affliction that the Lord is righteous. Right? Maybe we can take this even as a major point of my message today is to say, we must remember that the Lord is righteous when we face affliction. No matter how intense it is, we have to remember that the Lord is righteous. Absolute justice, fairness, wisdom, righteousness, and perfection characterize all God's ways. God never acts contrary to any of those attributes in all that he does. He's just, he's fair, he's wise, he's perfect, he's righteous. Now, I want to briefly look at what have the people done. We've already expressed that a major theme is God's people have sinned. And that's exactly what we see in this passage. The Lord is right to judge because his people have rebelled. I said earlier about the prophets 
had warned God's people 300 years to repent, to turn away. We saw two brief periods of repentance that were led by certain kings only to see their children lead them back into the idolatry that was before. And it wasn't enough. God decided that he would judge them for their continued rebellion, their idolatry, their infidelity to him. So the judgment of God articulated in the preceding verses that we saw expresses a price for playing with sin. What does it cost us to play with sin? How does God view our toying with sin? And the answer is that God's people have no ground for complaint against God. There's nothing they can say. The same reality is going to be true, as hard as this is for us to think about, the same reality will be true in the final day of judgment. All people will be judged before God. There's not one person who will be condemned to hell who will say, God did me wrong. I shouldn't say that they won't say that. Assuming they're still sinners, they may say all kind of blasphemous things. But there's not one that can rightly have a charge that God has done me wrong. God will be seen for what he is, as righteous and justice and just. So God's people have reaped what they have sown. They have rebelled against God and they thought, they presumed upon God's grace. They imagined that they were untouchable, that God would always overlook their sin. And now he's judged them. And so we see in the passage, it's Judah's rebellion. It's their disobedience, which has led directly to all the suffering described in this book. Look at verse 20. There's this crying out, look, O Lord, for I'm in distress. My stomach churns, my heart is wrung within me, within me because I have been very rebellious. So the reason behind it all is my own rebellion. I've been very rebellious. So rebellion against God will not go unpunished. I think that's another thing we must remind ourselves that God's not God will not allow himself to be mocked we can't rebel against God and I think maybe we think of rebellion in very strong terms and I think Israel had some very strong rebellion they wor- worshipped other idols but isn't all sin a form of rebellion against God God has commanded this is what we ought to do and we say but I want to do this instead and what we're seeing here is that God won't be mocked in what he commands. God will not allow rebellion to go unpunished. And so we saw back in verse 14, that illustration that the Lord had bound them in their sins. Though it was the Lord's work in binding them in their sin, it was their sin that's to blame. Proverbs 5.22 says, The iniquities of the wicked ensnare him, and he is held fast in the cords of his sin. This is always the consequence of sin. That it binds us. It traps us. And so Judah has become the victim of her own sinning. As is always the case. And so again and again in this passage we're reminded we can't play around with sin. We can't imagine that we're going to sin and it not have consequences in our life. That we won't get caught up in it. We won't be bound by it. Can we play with sin and expect God's blessing? Can we imagine that we will somehow avoid becoming ensnared in sin? Don't we oftentimes think, I can just, it's just this one time. Right? It's not really going to affect me. And we don't know at what point it is that the sin will actually ensnare us. And maybe we don't ever break free from it. Do we imagine that we can keep on sinning and grace will always abound? Can we walk in sin and still imagine ourselves fit for the Lord's service? That we could continue serving Him. Can we befriend sin and imagine we will remain unharmed by such friendship? 
I won't expand any further on the fact that it's their sin that's caused it. I think we've seen that already as we've gone through the passage. I want to make some points of application as we close our message tonight. First, to remind you all that we're called to holiness. I read earlier the passage from 1 Peter, Be holy as I'm holy. But we see the same theme throughout God's word. 1 John 5.21 says, Little children, keep yourself from idols. We know that that's not just speaking of those wooden carvings gilded with gold. We know it's also speaking of whatever it is that our hearts tend to worship other than God. And so we have to be careful not to run to our lovers, that we be faithful to the Lord, that we keep ourselves from idols. James 1.27, keep oneself unstained from the world. Again, in terms of holiness, that we not conform ourselves to the world. One of the great sins that Judah committed was they stopped being set apart for the Lord. They were jealous of the other nations, and so they went after their gods. They lived like the other nations around them. They pursued worldliness instead of holiness. Again, we read in 1 Thessalonians 4, 7, For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. And so we're reminded that this is what God's called us to. Secondly, we see that God has warned that He would judge His people if they continued in their sin and rebellion and idolatry. And God was faithful to His promise. I think when we sing of the faithfulness of God, when we speak of the faithfulness of God, we always think of it in positive terms. I appreciated uh, Ted led us this morning in worship and he pointed us to the faithfulness of God that we'll get to heaven if we're Christian one day. God's faithful in what He's promised. But we also understand that God's faithfulness means that He'll always do everything He says. Uh, Paul read earlier that the Lord doesn't change. God is faithful. So why do we so often imagine God will be unfaithful to us? And I don't just mean that we doubt that he will keep his promises in terms of blessing for us, which oftentimes we do that, don't we? We really wonder, now, is heaven real? Are we really going to, is God really going to do that for us? But how often do we doubt the faithfulness of God in judgment? That God really opposes sin. Do we imagine that the promises that he makes in regards to punishing sin or judging sin don't apply to us? God's not really going to do that. I think one of the messages that we're told in Lamentations is that God is faithful. And God's faithfulness sometimes means that God judges us. God judges sin. I would even be so bold, and now I'm making the, the distinction again, I'll be so bold as to say that that's even true for God's people who are Christians. Not the broad national sense that they were identified as with God's people. But those who are truly Christians, that God oftentimes will punish sin in the believer. Not condemning us. Our condemnation has fallen on Christ. But there are natural consequences that happen with sin. And there are times that the Lord allows those consequences to happen. That we may see the consequence of it. And that He may draw us back. God's goal for the Christians never ultimately going to condemn us. But just think for a second that there was the remnant that were within Judah when the siege happened. Some of the remnant probably died in the siege. But there are some who were carried off into exile who know the Lord, they love the Lord, and 70 years later, they're returning with Ezra. Right? We read about that in Ezra and Nehemiah, how they return, they're rebuilding Jerusalem. But God's purified them. He's wiped out so many who were opposed to him. And in all this, God has proved himself to be faithful. 
Thirdly, how often do we need to acknowledge and confess our sin to God instead of attempting to justify or defend ourselves? Do we sometimes, I should say do we, I imagine we all sometimes, when we're faced with our own sin, either by someone else or even when we feel convicted about it internally, we try to justify it sometimes. Well, this has been hard on me lately. Uh, Work's been hard. I've been really tired. I wouldn't normally do this, but this is what's going on. Lord, I was provoked. Did you see what so-and-so said to me? Did you see what they did? Uh, Maybe even going back to our past, do you know what I've gone through? That it's only natural for me to respond in this way. I think the reality is, and what we see in this passage even, is that uh, often we just need to confess our sin to God. We need to repent. Hypothetical, I know, but how might things have looked different for Judah if they would have repented? 299 years before the, before the exile, before 587. Right? What if they would have repented when the first prophets came and said, repent? What if they would have taken seriously their own sin and repented? And so often, I think, we just have to acknowledge that sin is what it is and we need to repent of it. We need to confess it before God that we might move away from it. What Judah needed and what we need today is repentance and forgiveness in obedience to God's word. Look at verse 18. The Lord is in the right, for I have rebelled against His Word. Maybe we need to stop our rebellion against the Word of God to repent and turn back to the Word. Fourthly, I want to encourage you that in your affliction, that you not deny that God has done it. Now, I know that this is probably one of the harder points from the message, but in the midst of affliction, are we ever tempted to blame our affliction on something else? I remember uh, one time discussing in my uh, Bible class when I taught in high school. Um, so teaching my high school students Bible, and we were talking about 9-11. And that God's sovereign, even over natural, excuse me, national disasters. Here's a, a communal lament, a national lament for us over 9-11. And I remember a student who vehemently said, God had nothing to do with it. Satan did that. And I think how often do we sometimes imagine that the Lord's not behind affliction? No matter what the affliction is, no matter even if it's our sin that's brought upon us the affliction, God's still sovereign over this. God's still working these things. God still has purposes in the midst of affliction. And so step one is that we acknowledge that God's sovereign even over our suffering. God's sovereign over our affliction. Step two is, yet we must remember that God is righteous. The Lord is in the right. And so we have to keep that balance always in hand. The Lord is sovereign and He's righteous. I may feel like I've been wronged, but I haven't been. God is doing what's right. And so we have to understand those two things. He is not now, nor can He ever wrong His people. As I said before, He can never wrong anyone. He's working all things together for His glory and our good even in the midst of our suffering, even in the midst of our affliction. As I said before, there are some there in Judah today, or in this day that this is happening, that are going to return one day, who are the remnant, who love the Lord. And so God's purifying them as a people. And they return uh, back to Jerusalem as a stronger people. I would add to that that God not only is preserving His line in the midst of the punishment that came upon them, But he's also preserving the line of the Messiah. Ultimately, this is about Jesus coming. 
And so before the whole nation turns away from him, he brings judgment upon them to purify them that he might bring a remnant back and ultimately from that remnant would come the Messiah that would redeem us all from our sins. Fifthly and finally, I want to ask you, how is God using suffering and affliction in your own life? I imagine that all of us have faced some form of suffering or affliction. Maybe we're not all going through it now, but if you are going through suffering now, how is God using that in your life? I think that's an important question to ask. Often God brings a person through suffering in this life that he might deliver them from the far greater suffering of eternal damnation after death. And so, uh, maybe we could put it in terms of uh, what we read in Corinthians, that this light and momentary affliction is working for us an eternal weight of glory. By comparison, what is the suffering we're facing to hell? And maybe God's using this to draw us into himself. I thought of two examples in God's word. Uh, one is in the Gospel of John of the man born blind. The, the fact that he was born blind meant he was there begging when God came. And remember the disciples said, Whose sin was it this man or was it his parents that sinned that he was born blind? Jesus said, no, it's neither of these, but it's so that God's glory might be revealed. And so the man suffered his whole life as a blind man. Why? That he might not go to hell. How glorious is that? That God would redeem him through suffering. Maybe one other example, uh, which is really a, uh, a story by Jesus, but the story of the prodigal son. The prodigal son is another one who who when things were going well, was in open rebellion against God. But it's not until he suffers that he realizes things were good with the Lord. Things were good. I want to return to my Father. And so, is it that God's using suffering to draw you into himself? That you might trust in him? Is God using the suffering you're facing to bring you to repentance toward God and to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? I think there are many Christians today who can pray Psalm 119.71 for themselves and say, It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. That's true. Many of us have gone through that that we can say, It's good that I was afflicted. If I had not been afflicted, where would I be now? It's only through the affliction that God has taught me to love His statutes and learn His statutes. And so we have to always remember that first comes the suffering and then the glory. I taught this morning about false prophets and false teachers I think the false teaching is oftentimes a reversal of that. Right? It's now's when you're supposed to be having glory. Don't worry about tomorrow. Now's glory. And the reality is that the suffering comes before the glory. And so, how is God using suffering in your life? And if you're not facing suffering today, equip yourself with His Word that when you do face suffering one day, you're not left shaking your fist at God's face. You're not saying to your husband or to your spouse, curse God and die. You're saying, the Lord is blessed, and the Lord is judged. I just completely forgot that. <laughs> the Lord is given, the Lord is taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And so, we want to have that kind of response. And it's God's word that equips us for that. Let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we pray for those in this room who are facing suffering now facing affliction in various ways, Lord, that you would help them to rest in you, to know that you are the one who afflicts, but Lord, you also are faithful. That when, when there's repentance, that you also are a forgiving God. 
Lord, we thank you for Jesus Christ who has taken upon himself the wrath that we so rightly deserved. And we pray for all in this room that their hope and trust would be in Christ and in Christ alone. May they trust in him and believe in him. And Lord, we pray that they would be delivered from that final destruction. And Lord, we thank you for affliction and for suffering because we know that you're working even our affliction and our suffering for our own good and for your glory. And Lord, though we may not see it now, though we may die never seeing how it was working for our good, we trust in you. Lord, grow that trust in us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. Amen.